Thank you, everyone. It is uh, great to be with you here tonight as we continue our Behold the Savior series. Tonight, we're going to be talking about Jesus, Light of the World, which is just such an impressive title. Uh, obviously, we talked about Son of Man last week, and that too is an incredibly impressive title. Uh, and I just love how all throughout the scriptures, we see Jesus being named time after time, all these different things to kind of help square our minds around this idea that he is different, that even though he walked among us as humans, he is God. He is someone that is here to change the world, to give us template for how to live, to bring about God's ultimate reconciliation, uh, to help transform the world, to help show us his living sacrifice. All of these incredible things are contained within these various titles that he's given in scripture. So as we look at light of the world tonight, we're going to spend some time on this phrase, uh, a couple different uh, scriptures that, that use it, uh, some scriptures that kind of uh, foreshadow it and kind of show the result of that light. Uh, and we're also going to be talking about just a couple of, of key facts of light as we understand it in our world uh, that I think helps even cement this further. So with that, let's turn over to Luke 2, and we're going to start in verses 25 through 28. So we're, we're here shortly after the birth story. We're about 40 days after Jesus's birth. And we are seeing this, this kind of entry point where we see this man who is labeled as righteous and devout. And while that is a very interesting title that's given to him, if we're paying attention, it's actually the, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, this outpouring of the Holy Spirit upon these people that is moving and driving the story forward. If you're looking through the, the rest of the, the infancy narrative in John, 1, uh, John, Mary, Jesus, Elizabeth, and, and Zechariah are all kind of mentioned uh, that there's some, some act of the Holy Spirit with them in the process of the story. So we see Simon, and we see him being moved by the Spirit. There was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. Sorry, not Simon, Simeon. Um, this man was righteous and devout, looking forward to Israel's consolation, and the Holy Spirit was on him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he saw the Lord's Messiah. Guided by the Spirit, he entered the temple. When the parents brought in the child Jesus to perform for him what was customary under the law, Simeon took him up in his arms, praised God, and said, Now, Master, you can dismiss your servant in peace, as you promised. For my eyes have seen your salvation. You have prepared it in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and glory to your people, Israel. His father and mother were amazed at what was being said about him. Then Simeon blessed them and told his mother Mary, Indeed, this child is destined to cause the fall and rise of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be opposed and a sword will pierce your own soul, that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. 
So Simeon's speech here is uh, often known in Latin as nunc dimittis. Uh, essentially, it means now you dismiss, and it's coming from the very beginning of that his, uh, his little uh, uh, poem here, essentially. You can dismiss your servant in peace. Uh, this is this incredible lifelong closure for Simeon that he has been patiently awaiting. And now him as a servant of God can be dismissed. His, his step and place in the world is done. He saw what he was supposed to see. Uh, and it's amazing. He, this, this little example can teach us so much about patience, about faith, about hope, looking forward to the future, and about the ultimate fulfillment of God's promises in our lives. It can teach us about this, this idea of, of the significance of recognizing who Christ is, of seeing him at work in this world, of, of recognizing when he shows up in situations, of seeing clearly when he's discussed in the scriptures, of, of hearing his call uh, as we read the word and try to live it out in our lives. And in this short little passage, there's also some, some pretty intense foreshadowing, right? This is going, this, this little baby is destined to cause the fall and rise of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be opposed and a sword will pierce your own soul that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. Simeon is so moved by, by God kind of closing out this expectation uh, that he had had his whole life, that he would get to see the Messiah before his death, uh, that he, he clearly speaks this prophetic message to Jesus' parents, letting them know that, yes, this is going to cause some, some dysfunction and disunity in this world, but it's leading to God's ultimate light uh, being kind of poured out on the, the world and what we'll see in Revelation kind of even further from there. Now, the, the passage here continues, Luke 2, 36. There was also a prophetess Anna, a daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was well along in years, having lived with her husband seven years after her marriage and was a widow for 84 years. She did not leave the temple, serving God day and night with fasting and prayers. At that very moment, she came up and began to thank God and speak about him to all who were looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem. And so Luke likes to, to typically use witnesses of both the male and female gender to show them working together, kind of this complete uh, entry point that God is showing the world what is happening. Uh, and two, same story, right? This, this patient waiting for the, looking forward to the redemption of, of Jerusalem and just being so clear having such a direct line with, with God, being so devout in her love of his word and his promises, that when the truth was placed before her, she knew exactly what it was. And we see kind of this combined uh, narrative effect of establishing a valid testimony, as James Edwards says in the Gospel according to Luke, uh, that this necessary is is nece it's necessary to establish a valid testimony in accordance accordance with Torah, uh, which requires that there be multiple witnesses to a great event. And so all of this, just for us to get this kind of first peak and this first additional confirmation that the light of the world has arrived and is going to have its impact. This incredible, incredible light.
So I, I want to give, like I said, just a couple of facts about light and then use them to look at a couple of other scriptures to really think about all that God is trying to teach us through through using this kind of metaphor as well as this, this truth of what eventually is going to happen in the world. So first, light travels at 186,000 miles per second. If you were to run around the world seven and a half times, you would have made it 186,000 miles. But all of that in one instantaneous moment. Light gets from point A to point B faster than we can possibly imagine. Light, when it appears in a situation, illuminates everything immediately. When God decides that it is time for something to be revealed, revealed it will be. Another fact about light is that it is the primary source of energy for most ecosystems. It is foundational to all life through photosynthesis and the impact that it has on, on the world and through food chains. Without light providing energy that plants, plants take and then turn into continued growth, we would not have life as we understand it at all in this world. There's, there's no, no possible way that it works without light. And finally, another very interesting fact about light is that it is above and beyond what we can see. Our eyes are focused and only able to see a limited spectrum of all light. Light that we see and understand is not the con con conclusive, uh, complete total light. So three little facts about light that we, we understand that we're going to use to return to a couple of scriptures to talk about how light illuminates, how it shows up in situations and gives, gives truth to it, how light gives, how light <laughs> it somehow takes energy and passes on good things, and how light persists and how often it is above and beyond what we are capable of comprehending. So let's talk about light illuminating and turn over to Isaiah 9, 1 through 7, please. Nevertheless, the gloom of the distressed land will not be like that of the former times when he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of the Naphtali. But in the future, he will bring honor to the way of the sea, to the land east of the Jordan, and to Galilee of the nations. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. A light has dawned on those living in the land of darkness. You have enlarged the nation and increased its joy. The people have rejoiced before you as they rejoice at harvest time and as they rejoice when dividing spoils. For you have shattered their oppressive yoke and the rod on their shoulders, the staff of their oppressor, just as you did on the day of Midian. For every trampling foot of battle and the blooded garments of war will be burned as fuel for the fire. For a child will be born for us, a son will be given to us, and the government will be on his shoulders. He will be named Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. The dominion will be vast, and his prosperity will never end. 
He will reign on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish and sustain it with justice and righteousness from now on and forever. The zeal of the Lord of armies will accomplish this. And so what's cool in this little passage of Isaiah, a, a specific pattern is repeated twice. First, you see what God does, and then you kind of see how, how that impacts the Lord's people, uh, what they enjoy, and then what follows. And so we'll look at that first little, little uh, uh, combined, combined section. So first, what is happening? This, there is this new situation by act of God. Uh, he who humbled will yet honor. The northern lands of Zebulun and Naphtali, covering the area west and southwest of the Sea of Galilee, were the first part of the promised land to fall to Assyria. So in Isaiah, all of these warnings about this kind of coming uh, external force, the Assyrians, uh, it's, it's happening there in front of them. Uh, the, this discussion of gloom and distress reflects the world, world, words translated as fearful. Isaiah, therefore, saw his prediction of darkness began to be fulfilled, but as always, we have to decide what reading of our experiences we're going to live by. Uh, and now I'm reading from J. Alec Mottier and his commentary of Isaiah. He says, The darkness and distress are real. But they are neither the only reality nor the fundamental reality. In any given situation, we can either sink into despair or rise to faith and hope. Isaiah insists that hope is part of the constitution of the here and now. Galilee of the Gentiles or nations was the Northwind ex extension of the Naphtali. No one else but Isaiah ever called this area Galilee of the Gentiles. Undoubtedly, there was a continuing Gentile component in this area, and maybe this prompted Isaiah to broaden his vision. It would seem that he could not embark on his first major statement of the hope of the coming king without the worldwide dimension hinted here and developed further in verse 7 and 11. Right, so, so Isaiah is trying to get out this prophecy about the, the active doom and destruction and while discussing this idea that light is going to come onto this situation and those that had been humbled will be honored, he can't help but break into this reality that this promise is for something bigger and larger than, than God's people directly addressed. Switching back to the commentary, now looking at, okay, so this is what God has done, this new situation, this new light dawning uh, that expands far beyond just God's people themselves. And so what do the Lord's people enjoy? Uh, reading from the commentary again, darkness becoming light, walking, living out their lives. And so what previously had been the hiding of the Lord's face in darkness, where during which they persevered in believing expectancy, this like hopeful uh, truth, this idea of darkness could be translated as death shadow. It's like this, this horrific, terrifying um, a thing that, that is over the land that promised death for all of us. It's, uh, it's in the background in a very illustrative way. And so then what follows is the Lord increases the joy of his people rejoicing before them. Like in the New Testament, Isaiah holds intention the forecast of a mere remnant 
and the multitude of the redeemed. There is a spiritual dimension of restoration and reconciliation acceptance before God. The old feasts were in this regard anticipations of the messianic day. So, so there's a lot going on in this passage, and all of it is being triggered by this light that all this, this uh, what do they call it, death shadow, this, this horrific reality of the world here and now, it is interacting with God's life, and it immediately breaks reality into this new expecting hopefulness where people are rejoicing like as in the harvest time. They're rejoicing over divided spoils. Because God's light, his truth presented on a situation, is enough to shatter the staff of the oppressor. It's enough to shatter the yoke of those that would repress the people. And, and all of this horror that has existed previously, the trampling boots of battle, the bloodied garments of war, it will be burned as fuel for the fire, right? It, it will all be kind of thrown out discarded upon because this new intense reality, this light has shown onto the situation and God has had enough with uh, the, the chaotic nonsense of the people, essentially. And it concludes, for a child will be born for us, a son will be given to us, and the government will be on his shoulders. Uh, this this chaotic realm versus realm, nation against nation, people against people, it is all shattered and is like fuel to the fire for instead this new reality of mighty God, eternal father, wonderful counselor, prince of peace. The dominion will be vast and prosperity will never end. He will reign on the throne of David over his kingdom to establish and sustain it with justice and righteousness from now on and forever. So again, chaos, light upon it, and what comes about in the aftermath is not just a casual turn from destruction, is not just some like, oh yeah, that was rough, but things are a little bit better now. It is instead a revealed reality that is infinitely better than even the people could hope for previously. Just one, one example of how light is used in scripture and how Jesus is kind of placed in the Old Testament as this promised messianic light that is going to give the world not just an answer to their troubles, but a new reality that was better than what they could have imagined. Psalm 119.105 says, Your word is a lamp for my feet and a light on my path. You know, this, this verse... Derek Kinder notes in his commentary on the Psalms that this is not convenient guidance for one's career, but truth for moral choices. So the, we don't want to turn to the scripture and think, man, I really hope God helps me pick the right school. Ah, oh, man, I really want to turn to God and light on my path. Like, am I supposed to go to Walgreens or CVS? It's, it's not that. It's his word is a lamp for our feet and a light on my path that we might be capable of making choices of integrity and standing for what is right in this world and caring for people who, who are not cared for and being willing to sacrifice ourselves for others. Like all of that is, is transmitted in these couple of words of what God's word does for us, 
that when we hold on to its truths, when we hold on to the reality that it presents, we we are not so lambasted by the world that we're just trying to like get by and make reasonably good decisions, but that we can time and time again make the godly choices that are going to impact our own lives and the lives of those around us. Your word is a lamp for my feet and a light on my path. And again, the way to, the way to view this is not a day-to-day -day little decision, but the choices of, of integrity and day in, day out, day out standing for, for godliness. John 8, 12, reading also in the Christian Standard Bible says, Jesus spoke to them again. I am the light of the world. Anyone who follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So I want to read a little bit from John, uh, I'm sorry, Colin Cruz's commentary on John here. And this is talking about kind of what's the, the background setting of this. When Jesus spoke again to the people, he said, I am the light of the world. This is the second of seven I am sayings, which predicates, which predicates in the Gospel of John. His claim to be the light of the world was made against the background of another Jewish practice at the Festival of Tabernacles, the great candle lighting ceremonies which took place each night, except on the intervening Sabbath. These cer ceremonies are described in the Mishnah. At the close of the first festival day of the feast, they went down to the court of the women where they had made a great amendment. There were golden candlesticks there with four golden bowls on top of them and four ladders to each candlestick. And four youths of the priestly stock and in the hands jars of oil holding 120 lots, which they poured out into all the bowls. They made wicks from the worn out drawers and girdles of the priests, and with them they set the candlesticks alight. And there was not a courtyard in Jerusalem that did not reflect the light of the Bath Kashiabah. Now, I want you to imagine the world without electricity. If you've ever been driving on, on a highway where all the lights are out, it is a very different experience than driving in one with them. If you've ever had to get something from your backyard in the middle of the night and your floodlights weren't working, it is a very different experience than with them on. If you had to go camping without a flashlight and you hadn't yet started your fire, it is just very, very different. And so imagine a city that has torches and has different lights, but once upon a year during this festival, it is blaze with these candlestick lights all around the city. And imagine the difference of seeing illumination in the nighttime and what that would do for your psyche as it remembers back to what God has done and what God is preparing. In this, in this little scripture, against that backdrop, we are reminded that Jesus is coming as the light of the world that although it is dark, we are seeing a little glimpse of what it could be with full illumination. That even at a time in the middle of the night when, when it is dark, what it could look like if there was light all around. So just a couple questions to be, to be thinking about as it relates to light illuminating. 
what does it look like to live an illuminated life? And some of the, the pieces that you can take from that scripture in Isaiah, shattered oppressive yoke, rejoicing at the harvest time, spend some time reflecting, what does it look like to live an illuminated life? Next, why use the, this metaphor at all? Why is this so, so central in this theme? And as we'll see from, from Genesis to Revelation, why is this so repeatedly used to, to signify Jesus and his impact on the world? And again, I think imagining the world without electricity probably helps our minds see it a little bit more clearly. And then two, I think it's, it's helpful to reflect, why does Jesus say never here? Okay, let's turn to light being something that gives. Matthew 5, 14 through 16. You are the light of the world. A city situated on a hill cannot be hidden. No one lights a lamp and puts it under a basket, but rather on a lampstand. And it gives light for all who are in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. So obviously we know this is in the middle of Jesus's Sermon on the Mount. And if we look at Jesus's ministry clearly, we see something happened, right? He, he grows up not yet in his ministry, and then he starts to perform these different signs. He starts to collect his disciples, and very rapidly, he is in it. He is, he is doing God's work. He is carrying out his, his earthly ministry. And two things you see kind of repeated over and over in Scripture. One, he's doing incredible good deeds. He's meeting people's actual, spiritual, and physical needs. He's trying to get them to not talk about it. He's, he's kind of repeatedly trying to step away from situations, walking through the crowd to get away um, because these good deeds and its attachment to God's light and its attachment to God's truth and its, its attachment to shining light on darkness is causing all the forces in the world to very rapidly turn against him. And so we look at a scripture like this and we think about, okay, what is our place in this world? How then does, does God take it from, okay, he, he is the light, he's, he's placed Jesus in the, the world as the light of the world, but then Jesus says to us, you are the light of the world. I, I think it's helpful to think a little bit about the spiritual discipline of secrecy, which is that we are not supposed to talk about our good deeds. There's a, there's a very clear biblical precedent that that's just something that we ought not to be sharing about. And yet, there's this idea that even if you try to hide it, you, you cannot. When you are overwhelmed and overflowing with God's love, and you are giving that to other people, even if you're trying to hide your good deeds, it's still going to kind of be just flowing out of you. It cannot be hidden, a city situated on a hill. And so light itself, from a, just a, a pure reality of, of our understanding of nature, it provides energy, it provides life. And when we are laying down our lives, 
to give away God's love the same way it was so generously bestowed upon us when we did not deserve it and when we would not in the future deserve it, we are able to pass on that same life-giving light that was offered to us. You are the light of the world. A city situated on a hill cannot be hidden. No one lights a lamp and puts it under a basket, but rather on a lampstand. And it gives light for all who are in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father of heaven. And again, this is not a situation of trying to boast about yourself, but it's the pure fact that if you actually humble yourself before others and you view their needs as more important than your own, then God will exalt you and God will give you many opportunities to care for and give to others. So a couple things for, for reflection when it comes to light being something that is giving. Think about who has shown themselves as the light of the world, as Jesus described here, in your own life. Think about those examples. Think about the people that have just been so clearly from God, of God, for you, that they were willing to put down their own needs to pour out their love for you and others, and that their example has helped inspire and flourish your own faith. And honestly, let them know. We need to, to encourage one another, but that is a really important thing. We need to encourage people when they are doing what God has asked of them. Think about and discuss the impact of a light switch. Think about when a room is told, think about when your basement is completely dark and you are stumbling around, tripping over the power tools, like whatever it may be, the difference of when light is in the situation and how much more at calm and at peace things can be with it. And, and finally, do think about how does this relate to the spiritual discipline of secrecy? Sorry for the uh, typo there. Finally, let's look about this idea of light persisting. And again, I think this is one of those things where, okay, I think th this concept is not very complicated, right? God put Jesus on earth to be the light of the world, that he would teach us how to be the light of the world, that we would show God's love and show his light and teach his word to others. But there's something kind of more to this story. And I think if we, we liken that to this idea of, of ultraviolet light, like these things outside of the spectrum, it's good to remember what are the bookends of this story of light and its impact in the world. So let's look at two scriptures and see how it all relates. Starting in Genesis 1, 1 through 5, now the earth was formless and empty, darkness covered the surface of the watery depths, and the Spirit of the Lord, of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. Then God said, let there be light, and there was light. God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. There was an evening, and there was a morning, one day. And then right near the end of the scriptures, Revelation 21, starting in verse 23, the city does not, and now this is talking about kind of God's 
holy city that has descended on earth that has created this new heaven and a new earth that are kind of living in conjunction. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it because the glory of God illuminates it. And its lamp is the lamp. The nations will walk by its light. And the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. Its gates will never close by day because it will never be night there. And so, you know, we, we've read this chunk of Revelation to Edward. And now he's been frequently asking me, like, Dad, when is it never going to be nighttime again? When is it always day? Um, and and that that childlike hope and innocence and foretelling of the future is what we all need to obtain. We need to be remembering that we are placed in the middle of this story that is far more incredible than, than what our present situation in front of us can imagine. And yet, what our present situation in front of us is, is part of getting from the beginning of the story to the end of the story. In the beginning, the earth was formless and void. Darkness covered the surface of the watery depths. And in that, God creates, uh, you know, kind of on this, this, uh, this functional line, like he creates light and it is, it is there. And he's like, that's good. But then the earth continues in its chaos and it continues within our sin and it continues in our, in our desire to know better than God, to, to be the, the captains of our own destiny. And so God sends a perfect example of his light in the middle of the earth to show his people what he meant and what he had designed for them and what he intended their lives to look like. And we get to then try to live that out and try to participate it and try our very best by honoring the scriptures, by caring for one another, by again, letting God be control of our lives instead of ourselves. We get to see what it looks like when God's light is in a situation. And all of that is happening that God is giving the most amount of people as possible an opportunity to be confronted with his light firsthand, that they may too choose to be part of that light and then gain acceptance and entry into his divine holy city where there is no darkness, where the, the death shadow, as promised in Isaiah, shrouding over the earth is removed, where the boots of war are burnt up, where, where the, the, the blood and the, the oppression and the toil, and all of these things that are just commonplace in, in the chaos of the world that we have created is eliminated, and where God's light is the only thing around. So a couple things to be thinking about with these scriptures. Can you imagine the world without darkness? Are you, like Simeon, holding on to the hope that that is what God is doing? What daily and weekly activities am I living now that fits most closely with the world as presented in Revelation 21? Jesus' instruction to us was not wait. His instruction to us was not 
cover yourselves in your houses and be patient. It instead was, you are the light of the world. And so if we have this expectation and hope of what God is doing in the world, are we actively, daily, weekly participating in what that looks like? And finally, do I see how God is using his light in me to bring about his ultimate redemption? And I think these scriptures and these kind of follow-up questions, when taken together, help us to look at the passage talking about the birth of Christ our Savior and have so much hope brought about this idea of the light of the world. So thank you all so much for your time this evening. 